We the People of the We the People podcast want to hear from you on how We the People is doing with this We the People podcast. Please visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash survey and complete our five-minute survey, which takes longer than it takes to introduce the survey. Please be sure to fill out the survey and rate the podcast on iTunes and other platforms. Your feedback ensures we can keep growing and improving this crucial space for constitutional debate. And as always, feel free to email me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, and let me know how we're doing. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. This week, in anticipation of the 150th anniversary of the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson on February 24th, we look at the history of presidential impeachments, the interpretation of the impeachment clause, and the application to current day controversies. Joining us to discuss this important historical anniversary, happy 150th anniversary impeachment of President Johnson, are two of America's leading scholars on the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson and of the impeachment clause more generally. Keith Whittington is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He co-wrote the interactive constitution explainers on the impeachment clause with Neil Kimkoff. And we the people listeners, I want you to read those explainers as homework for this podcast. And David O. Stewart is the writer, historian, and former appellate lawyer uh, who is the author of many books, including Impeached, The Trial of President Andrew Johnson and the Fight for Lincoln's Legacy. Keith, David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. David, let's jump right in with you. Uh, You chronicle this riveting constitutional tale in your book on the trial of President Andrew Johnson, why was President Andrew Johnson impeached, and what was the resolution? Well, the real reason he was impeached was he was an uh, incredibly obnoxious son of a gun who would not compromise over anything and got very uh, crosswise with the overwhelming Republican Party majority in Congress. He was a Democrat historically and had been Lincoln's running mate. Uh, When Lincoln was trying to appeal to Democrats in the 1864 election, when he succeeds Lincoln, uh, he discovers that he really doesn't much care for the people in the party that elected him. And he uh, reaches out to bring the southern states back into the union in a way that the Republicans found just noxious. Uh, He allowed the formation of... Uh, racist and uh, highly discriminatory governments in the South. Uh, When Congress tried to intervene in that, he obstructed Congress to the extent he could. Uh, When uh, the army was occupying the South and attempting to enforce these federal laws, uh, he in fact tried to prevent the army from enforcing the laws. Uh, And that was at bottom what drove the Republican majority to impeachment. Now, the pretext for the impeachment was the Tenure of Office Act, which was a statute Congress enacted when they were so angry with Johnson, which dealt with an odd ellipsis in the Constitution. Uh, The Constitution is very clear as to how 
senior officials are appointed. They are appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate, but it is silent as to how you get rid of them. And uh, this was argued about in the first Congress, and uh, it was decided then that the president should be allowed to fire his own people that he appoints. Uh, in 1867, Congress wasn't happy with Johnson having that power, so they created a, what you might call a mirror image requirement that if he wanted to get rid of a senior official, the Senate had to con confirm it as they would confirm an appointment. Uh, this Tenure of Office Act came into play several times, and Johnson lived with it, although he had tried to – he had vetoed it and it had been passed over his veto. Um, he then uh, uh, fired Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. He had tried – he first fired him, and uh, the Senate refused to go along, and then he just fired him and appointed a replacement. And that was the precipitating event. He was impeached by the House within five days of his firing. Stanton and the impeachment articles largely focused on that issue, uh, that he had violated the law. Um, and in fact, there was a trap in the statute which said uh, any violation of the statute was a high crime and this misdemeanor. Uh, obviously, the draftsman was trying to make it clear that it fell within the impeachment clause. Thank you so much for that. Um, Keith, the defense in the Johnson trial was uh, many and varied. Uh, Johnson's defenders argued that he hadn't violated the Tenure of Office Act because Stanton had been appointed by Lincoln and Johnson wasn't obliged to continue to keep him in. And then they said that Johnson couldn't be impeached for a mistaken interpretation of the law and his intent was to test the constitutionality of the law, which he had a right to do, as it happens, the Supreme Court later in the Myers case written by Chief Justice William Howard Taft held that the Tenure of Office Act was indeed unconstitutional. So tell us more about the constitutional defense that Johnson raised and what its significance turned out to be. Yeah, so one of the questions at uh, issue in the uh, impeachment is, is simply what counts as high crimes and misdemeanors uh, more more generally. Um, uh, as you noted, one of the odd things about the Tenure of Office Act is it specified that the violations of that statute would count as a high crime misdemeanor, but that's um, an extremely unusual move and, and not obvious that Congress can simply define through statute um, what ought to uh, meet those constitutional qualifications of being an impeachable offense. Uh, but it's clearly a signal um, to the president about um, how Congress would treat a violation. Um, and so one um, issue that the defense team wanted to argue um, in the trial itself was that um, what um, the president done um, shouldn't constitute uh, an impeachable offense. Um, part of the argument as well was, was what do you do about the possibility of a statute um, that affects presidential power uh, being unconstitutional? Um, so Johnson wanted to argue that um, the Tenure of Office Act um, was um, at least arguably unconstitutional. He thought it was definitely unconstitutional. Um, and under those circumstances, um, it was appropriate for the president um, to potentially uh, violate the statute. Statute, uh, in order to call into question its constitutionality. Um, and the House managers um, argued in response that the president couldn't make that assumption, um, that the president was obliged to assume um, that a statute uh, was constitutional, um, that there was um, no um, um, a circumstance under which it would be appropriate for the president to uh, violate um, the terms of the statute on the basis of the claim um, that it was unconstitutional. Um, and so uh, ignoring congressional will and violating a statute um, in that context um, was, it, was itself an impeachable offense. Uh, many thanks for that. 
Uh, David, tell us about the debate over impeachment itself. On May 16th, 1868, in a dramatic roll call, 35 senators voted to convict Johnson of high crimes, 19 senators voted to acquit, uh, uh, falling one vote short of the necessary uh, two-thirds majority. And among the 19 senators who voted to acquit were seven Republican recusants who defied their party one said, I cannot agree to destroy the harmonious working of the Constitution for the sake of getting rid of an unacceptable president. Why, why did the recusants think it would destroy the Constitution to convict, and how much was the constitutional debate central to the final outcome? Well, I think it, it's fair to say that the argument uh, that Keith has just outlined, which uh, was presented principally by former Supreme Court Justice Benjamin Curtis, that the president had the right to say this is an unconstitutional statute and I shouldn't have to abide by an unconstitutional statute. I have my own independent judgment on constitutionality and I'm elected by the people and have to exercise it. Uh, I think uh, there were enough people who thought that was a legitimate argument um, and I, frankly it has been borne out by history. Uh, so I, I think that was very important. I think there also were some very practical issues that played into it. Uh, there were a number of senators who felt making Andrew Johnson a martyr by actually forcibly removing him from office was a bad move. Uh, they were only seven months away from the next presidential election. The Republicans had Ulysses Grant lined up to be their standard bearer. They thought he would win uh, handily. Um, and so they thought it was just dumb to get hung up over getting rid of Andrew Johnson for seven months and take a chance on blowing the next four years control of the White House. Uh, so there were some practical issues as well. Thank you for that. Keith, what is the lesson of the Johnson impeachment for the scope of presidential power? Uh, tell us more about the Myers case, what Chief Justice Taft's reasoning was, how, how Justice Brandeis and his Humphreys executor decision questioned some of Taft's reasoning and holding that that Congress can create quasi-independent uh, officers, um, but, but there's still a core of presidential power to fire that remains uh, protected. And then, of course, I, I'm sure our listeners want to know, are, are there any implications of the debate over the constitutionality of the Tenure of Office Act for, for the current debates about the president's power to fire uh, James Comey and other officials? Yeah, so I think there are lots of, of interesting implications, um, some of which don't um, get fully played out until uh, uh, much later, as as you note. Um, so it is true that that um, there's this um, uh, point of uncertainty in the Constitution about how exactly uh, you can remove um, executive branch officials uh, from office. Um, the first Congress um, debated um, over that issue, um, and there was disagreement uh, in Congress um, at that time um, about whether or not um, um, Congress, or in particular the Senate, uh, could play some role uh, in the decision as to whether or not to uh, remove um, uh, executive officers who had, uh, in fact, been confirmed by the Senate when they were appointed in the first place, um, or did the president have a unilateral authority to remove um, executive branch um, officers? Uh, Congress uh, settled on allowing the president um, to have unilateral power, to not have to go back to the Senate or to the Congress uh, in order to remove people. And that had been the settlement that was uh, broadly accepted, although there was some disagreement about whether or not it was 
um, uh, necessary to the constitutional structure that it worked that way. Um, and so the Reconstruction Congress was really pushing up against uh, what had been a fairly settled um, uh, precedent on how to um, deal with um, executive branch officials. And, and they pushed on it um, hard precisely because they were um, – uh, struggling with how to control um, an independent president um, who was interfering with congressional policy um, over Reconstruction. And and they did it not only through the Tenure of Office Act um, in trying to lock into place uh, Lincoln's um, uh, cabinet members um, and force Johnson to uh, work with them, uh, but in addition, they included a rider on an, an Army Appropriations Bill um, that required that any orders that um, went to uh, the uh, military um, had to pass through General Grant um, so that Johnson couldn't uh, directly issue orders um, to the military, but effectively made uh, General Grant um, a kind of quasi-commander-in-chief, which also um, was quite constitutionally dubious, but, but was all an effort to try to contain um, Andrew Johnson. Um, so then there's a real question, well, what, what should be the lesson then from this um, larger episode for how we ought to think about um, uh, that removal power um, on the part of the president, um, what the correct approach is for addressing uh, a president who we think has abused uh, the removal power. Um, and the court um, wound up uh, dealing with these issues again in the 20th century. Um, uh, by that time, um, there was greater support for presidential power and presidential uh, control um, over the executive branch uh, more generally. And the court wound up um, uh, coming to the conclusion that, in fact, the uh, Tenure of Office Act was, was unconstitutional and interfered with the president's authority to unilaterally uh, be able to remove um, executive branch um, officers, which um, the court argued was essential to the uh, smooth operation um, of the executive branch and, and core to the president's um, own duty uh, to take care that the laws um, be uh, faithfully um, executed. Um, and that um, sort of ongoing argument about how much authority does the president have uh, to remove uh, lower level executive branch officials and does he have to have uh, that authority to remove uh, uh, executive branch officials in order to uh, ensure that in the president's judgment um, the laws are being faithfully executed um, uh, remains with us and has consequences for thinking about the Comey firing and other things as well. Many thanks for that. David, what do you think the implications of the Johnson impeachment are for our current debates about the Comey firing? Uh, Johnson had a constitutional defense. The, the, the current president is not raising one. What can we learn from history on this score? I, I honestly think the principal lesson is um, that we don't impeach and remove a president just because he's a lousy president. Um, and, you know, this was stated uh, you had a good quote from somebody who said, uh, one of the senators said, uh, we can't remove him simply because he's an unacceptable president. Uh, there is something greater required uh, essentially to reverse the will of the people. Now, that was sort of a sketchy proposition with Johnson, who had been a, uh, you know, a running mate. He hadn't actually been the, at the top of the ticket, ticket but the fact is uh, he was part of the team that was elected and if you're going to basically decapitate a branch of government by removing the president, um, you need to have a lot of legitimacy to that. And I think the Johnson case uh, is one that said merely disagreeing with the president, frankly, holding the president in contempt uh, as a human being uh, is not enough. Great. Uh, 
well, uh, great in the sense of accurately <laughs> describing the historical lesson. Um, let us, uh, we'll return to this question of both the firing of Comey and the possible firing of, uh, of uh, uh, former FBI Director Mueller and, and, and whether that might be impeachable, but we need to put some more historical precedents on the table before we can make informed decisions about that. And our next precedent is Richard Nixon, Keith. Uh, there were a series of charges against uh, Nixon. Uh, uh, can you describe uh, what they were and uh, what the uh, House uh, uh, began to conclude about what was impeachable? Well, as with Johnson, there's a sort of um, a lengthy period of, of debate about um, what exactly uh, uh ought to be the basis for trying to impeach Nixon if we were going to impeach him at all. Um, during uh, the Reconstruction debates, um, there were uh, radical Republicans in the House who were trying to build a majority uh, that'd be willing to impeach Johnson, and, and they offered a variety of different kinds of uh, reasons for doing it before uh, his eventual violation of the Tenure of Office Act um, created enough of a support in the House that they could actually move forward. Um, and the Democrats in Congress uh, confronting Richard Nixon um, had a similar issue of they had lots of disagreements with the president. They thought that he was abusive in various ways. Uh, and the question was, how do you build enough uh, support um, in Congress to be able to actually move on it? Um, and in the end, uh, they were able to latch on um, to the Watergate investigations um, as the hook that um, uh, got majority support in the, or was likely to get majority um, support in the House. But there are certainly those who would want to say that we that they should be able to impeach John, uh, Nixon um, for a broader range of issues, including arguments that he ought to be impeached for how he was conducting uh, the war uh, in Vietnam and that he was abusing the war power. There are arguments that he ought to be impeached over uh, how he had exercised uh, the impoundment power um, to uh, refuse to spend funds that uh, Congress um, had appropriated. Um, but those were much more controversial, um, challenged uh, much more aggressively uh, presidential power more generally. The relatively easy thing um, to um, try to impeach him on was an argument about um, obstruction of justice um, and that the uh, president interfered with um, uh, criminal investigations and it interfered, interfered with um, uh, criminal proceedings. And ultimately, once the um, uh, Watergate tapes um, were going to be released, that um, uh, would be able to document that the president um, had ordered um, underlings to uh, interfere uh, with the investigations. It was going to become uh, much easier uh, to um, move on that kind of impeachment and and ultimately, Nixon uh, saw that his support in Congress had collapsed and, and he was forced to resign. Many thanks for that. David, your parsing of the Nixon uh, impeachment uh, charges, as uh, Keith suggested, there were a bunch ranging from the idea that he underpaid his taxes, uh, which uh, Cass Sunstein in his new book on impeachment says may have been a crime but should not have been impeachable, to his re refusing to comply with the committee's subpoenas. Uh, to the core questions of obstruction, which included the idea that he had tried to cover up the Watergate uh, break-in by lying to investigators, withholding evidence, interfering with lawful investigations, paying hush money, and trying to misuse the CIA. Can, w w can you parse the Nixon impeachment charges and tell us what their lessons are? It, yes, I, I do think, uh, and frankly, this applies to all of the uh, impeachments, uh, even starting with Johnson, because as Keith suggested, there was an attempt actually to present impeachment articles to the House for simply uh, Johnson being a lousy guy, and not even the Republicans could get it out 
on that basis. There was a failed impeachment effort uh, in the fall of 1867. So with Nixon, there were three articles, and frankly, the one about obstructing the refusing to comply with subpoenas wasn't really doing terribly well. But the ones about obstruction of justice, and it had been a drumbeat of uh, press and media reports about uh, the various uh, skullduggery that had been gone on that had gone on to uh, obstruct investigations, uh, and then the overarching firing of uh, Archibald Cox. Uh, as the special prosecutor, all created um, considerable support for that. It got out of the House uh, committee with uh, over a two-thirds majority. And I think it was part of channeling impeachment efforts to actual crimes. Uh, One of the real arguments that has raged, to the extent things can rage, uh, arguments can rage over impeachment uh, over the centuries, is... uh, you know, what is a high crime and misdemeanor? And there are folks who say it's, you know, really just, uh, uh, you know, failing as a, to execute your duties uh, uh, genuine, uh, with integrity and uh, uh, legitimacy as opposed to committing a crime. And I think Congress has always had an orientation towards trying to find a crime. It just feels easier. And I think you see that in the Nixon impeachment. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Well, uh, uh, if the consensus of uh, the committee was that obstruction was the strongest claim for Nixon, it was similarly the strongest claim for Clinton. So, uh, Keith, can you remind us what the impeachment charges against President Clinton were and how they fared in the Senate. Yeah, so the impeachment charges against um, Clinton focused on um, uh, the possibility of him uh, committing uh, perjury and his testimony um, associated with um, lawsuit, by, uh, civil lawsuit by uh, Paula Jones uh, against him. Um, and um, so you know, broadly conceived, at least, um, uh, also related to questions then of, of obstructing and interfering with um, uh, judicial uh, proceedings. Um, it didn't. Ha- it it took place in, in a similar political context in the sense of lots of conflict between um, the president and a and a um, Congress controlled by the opposite party, um, but was not rooted in the same sort of uh, mix of other um, kinds of offenses um, that people were um, arguing were. Uh, potentially impeachable the same way that um, uh, radical Republicans were arguing uh, relative to Andrew Johnson or that some Democrats were arguing uh, relative to Nix- Richard Nixon. So the Clinton impeachment was much more targeted um, than on, on this perjury charge. That was enough to get it through the House, um, but ultimately um, not much support uh, for trying to um, uh, impeach uh, or remove the president um, uh, in the Senate um, over that. And, and the arguments were sort of of two types, one of being whether or not this even rises to the level of impeachment offense, uh, even if it's true and can be proved. Um, But in addition, there were arguments about whether or not um, uh, the way in which uh, Clinton had testified um, in his deposition uh, really did amount um, to perjury um, in a way that would even violate um, uh, statutes in the first place. Um, uh, Thanks for that. So, David, at the time and since, uh, defenders of Clinton argued that the obstruction charges against him were not uh, 
legitimate grounds for impeachment. Cass Sunstein, in his recent piece, Impeachment, A Citizen's Guide, in The New Yorker, uh, says, recall the context, Jones sued Clinton for sexual harassment based on pre-presidential conduct. Um, his uh, Most of the steps he took to reduce her chance of victory involved efforts to persuade Lewinsky to lie. That's bad, but it's hardly close to the kind of thing that concerned Hamilton, Madison, and their colleagues. Was the alleged obstruction that President Clinton uh, was accused of, if true, impeachable uh, or, 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 or not? Uh, you know, I thought not at the time. Uh, I didn't think, uh, you know, there. Th- this is sort of newly dangerous ground to be treading uh, in view of the attention to the issues of sexual harassment and oppression of women in the workplace. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was conduct involved that was deeply unadmirable by Mr. Clinton. Uh, but the issue was, uh, I mean, these subjects were not a secret at the time he was elected, um, and these these sort of issues with respect to him. Uh, and to be honest, there are were a lot of people at the time who really thought, well, you know, yeah, you lie about sex. I mean, <laughs> anybody would. So I think there was a, a something of a collective shrug, uh, and it, at least among enough people that. The impeachment effort, I don't think, really got a lot of traction at the time. Uh, and that uh, it's almost an interesting uh, intellectual experiment to question if that would be the attitude today. Um, but I, I do think uh, there was a legitimate question. You know, he was functioning as president in an effective way. Uh, he, his sort of actions as president were really not on the table. Uh, and I think that's uh, one of the reasons it, it, it seemed like a personal peccadillo, perhaps one of considerable size, but not one that really rose to the level of a, being a public issue. Keith, do you agree with David or not that uh, obstruction of justice or lies about uh, personal peccadilloes are not impeachable? And, and what do you think the lessons of history suggest about what kinds of obstruction are impeachable? And in particular, uh, would an attempt to cover up or obstruct uh, Comey's investigation into Russia uh, be impeachable? Well, I think the Clinton impeachment was a borderline case um, uh, that the uh uh, the the underlying charge about the the way in which um, Clinton uh, obstructed justice through through his dealings with the um, uh, Jones case uh, was fundamentally a claim about um, what would be characterized as private um, uh, behavior, his private actions as an individual, uh, rather than how he conducted the office itself. And so then the core claim became, well, um, uh, this is this private behavior um, is nonetheless inconsistent uh, with the nature of his office that as president um, and the chief executive officer um, of the United States. He has a particular responsibility and duty um, to be compliant um, with the laws, uh, even in his own uh, private behavior. Um, And so the inconsistency of seeing the president of the United States uh, behaving in a way um, that was inconsistent um, with the laws uh, was a tension that's um, too great to bear. Um, And as a consequence, um, uh, president ought to be uh, impeached and removed on, on uh, under under those circumstances, um, 
I think there's a, a reasonable argument there. That's a, that's 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 not a, a crazy kind of claim to make, um, but it's a tough claim um, uh, to make. And and a lot of it turns on um, how big of a conflict do people really think there is between a president. Um, uh, uh, private action in this case and and his uh, duties. Um, and so to think again about sort of Nixon uh, cheating on his income taxes uh, kind of claim where we'd make a similar kind of argument that um, uh, something like that might expose a president um, as um, uh, in violation of, of the law and his own private behavior. Um, and is it um, uh, consistent with how we understand the office that you keep somebody like that uh, in in a position of power, having been exposed as, as somebody who uh, can't even comply with the law in his own uh, private behavior. Um, and that's just a tough sell, um, I think, in general. Um, and so, uh, and likewise, the Republicans then really struggled um, to make that claim uh, stick and, and persuade, uh, in particular, Democrats, but even to persuade all the Republicans to go along with that kind of, of argument. I, I think the current kind of context of what we're thinking about with the Trump administration is, is quite different. And so um, uh, the obstruction issues that we're arguing about um, are uh, things affecting uh, things that are much more central to his uh, public duties rather than simply um, his private behavior. They're, they're ongoing um, activities that people are concerned with and, and how he um, relates to um, uh, other office holders and whether it's through his official acts, like his removal of Comey, um, or through various um, unofficial acts um, that he takes in order to uh, potentially um, uh, interfere with the investigation. And so um, I think those raise different questions, whereas, you know, maybe we'd be in, in a similar ballpark if we found, uh, for example, through the Mueller investigation that uh, Trump and his financial dealings 10 years ago um, had violated um, the law in, in various ways. And, and now we want to put that on the table and say, well, that's an impeachable offense um, now because of uh, things that Trump in his um, uh, private business affairs um, uh, in, in some time in the past had, had done. Um, and I think that likewise would be a, a hard um, argument to make. It'd be hard to persuade enough people to go along with that to actually uh, impeach and remove a president on that basis. Thanks for that. Well, uh, David, we're now squarely in the present and the News of the past few weeks has been the reports that the president in June wanted to fire Robert Mueller, but was talked out of it by his White House counsel. Um, what uh, significance might his desire to fire Mueller have on possible impeachment charges? And then, you know, step back, please, and tell us how, uh, if impeachment charges were to be brought against the president for obstructing justice, uh, the, 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 the desire to fire Mueller, the firing of Comey uh, might fit into the evaluation both as a legal matter where obstruction is hard to prove and as a uh, political matter when it comes to voting on impeachment. Uh, you know, the, any obstruction case turns on, I, I mean, you have to have some acts of obstruction and to be blunt, I think we're going to, we've got quite a few already, and there will only be more with cooperating witnesses like Michael Flynn and uh, uh, this fellow Papadopoulos. Um, and as people from within the White House, frankly, uh, feel the heat. But the question is always with corrupt intent. Uh, that's the standard under the statutory obstruction of justice statute. And I do think that's the standard that 
any uh, political figure would look at. What it, What is he trying to cover up and why? Uh, with Nixon, he was covering up payoffs. I mean, ugly stuff. Uh, and, you know, the cash flowing through his campaign in a weird way. Uh, in and misconduct with the CIA. Uh, in this case, Trump's argument, I'm quite sure, would be initially, I thought this was a, a distraction of the nation that undercut the legitimacy of my presidency and my election uh, under the rules, of the, the standards of the Constitution. And I thought it was a, you know, they're, they're, he's indicting these people over their money laundering in Ukraine in Manafort's case, Paul Manafort's case, uh, and over, you know, peccadillos like uh, Flynn's troubles uh, with registering as a foreign agent. So, you know, frankly, it just wasn't anything really substantive about the supposed Russian interference in the government. Uh, there's nothing to cover up there because nothing happened. Um, so, you know, it's not a terrible argument as long as truly nothing happened. So that's the sort of loop we get into, which is you can't answer the question whether his obstruction is justified uh, or at least defensible until you know the outcome of the investigation. But he wants to exercise his power to stop the investigation. That much is clear that he does want to stop the investigation. So, you know, my, my take on this is, um, you know, bluntly, not yet, uh, you know, wanting to fire Mueller is way different from firing him, uh, which he hasn't done yet. Uh, I've personally been pretty disturbed by this episode with the deputy director of the uh, FBI. Um, it, it's a mystery to me that somehow uh, a White House can be at war with the FBI. That's just shows you where we have come. Uh, and in this situation, uh, we do need to know, though, more about the Russia connection, because until we know that, and you know, maybe the congressional committees will give it to us, um, it becomes pretty hard to judge what the president is doing and has done. And I want to stress, I think it's very important to keep in mind that although Professor Sunstein and Others make an argument that I'm very sympathetic to, which is you don't need an actual crime to have an impeachable offense, a high crime and misdemeanor. I think historically speaking, in terms of the intent of the framers, that's true. But to be honest, Congress wants one. That's what they want to see. That's what the three impeachments we've lived through teach us. And without that, I don't think an impeachment effort can work, even putting aside the fact that the Republicans control Congress right now. And as Keith has pointed out, unless the other party controls Congress, impeachment uh, is unprecedented. Thank you for that. Keith, your thoughts on this important question, first of whether the desire to fire Mueller might factor into proving corrupt intent criminally or in a possible impeachment charge. And then let's just jump right to the future. Imagine that Trump fires Mueller. How would that change the impeachment consequences and what would the legal and political implications be? 
Yeah, I'm very skeptical of the notion that the desire to fire uh, Mueller should be um, or would be conceived as being uh, sufficient to um, justify an impeachment. Um, I think only the president's um, strongest critics are going to find that um, very, very compelling in, it, in its own terms. Um, I think it's possible, though, that that um, it that that you can draw a line between uh, what counts as, as actual obstruction of justice in the sense of being a criminal violation um, that you might be able to prosecute as opposed to um, what we ought to regard as obstruction of justice for a political purpose um, in the context of an impeachment. And I think that it'd be possible um, to get traction um, and it'd be appropriate um, to um, push forward an impeachment even if you say, well, look, this doesn't technically um, uh, violate the law such that we can imagine prosecuting um, President Trump um, over it. Um, but nonetheless, this is interfering um, with an investigation um, that um, it's inappropriate for the president to be interfering with, um, and it's an abuse of the president's powers to um, behave uh, in, in particular ways. So, for example, firing uh, Mueller. And, and so you can imagine um, advancing an impeachment case um, uh, along those along those lines, I think it is true that the administration's argument, uh, uh, President Trump's argument, would be um, that he has perfectly legitimate, uh, if controversial, um, reasons for um, engaging in the particular actions he's engaging in, whether it's firing Comey um, already or firing uh, Mueller uh, potentially uh, in in the future. Um, and I think um, congressmen would be very reluctant to want to impeach and remove a president um, because he's making controversial um, uh, political and policy choices um, uh, that uh, – Ultimately, we don't want to um, find ourselves in a situation where Congress thinks that you can second-guess presidents um, about how they exercise their power um, and impeach and remove them if Congress um, disapproves of the way he's exercising um, power. Um, but we might think that, for example, removing Mueller in, in the future would be um, – uh, so egregious that, that it should be regarded as impeachable um, if it prevents us from ever even being able to engage in the investigation to discover uh, whether or not um, uh, there are um, underlying crimes associated with um, Trump's election campaign, for example, or Trump's holdings uh, more more generally, for example. And so I, I think it'd be possible to say that even though we have not yet been able to demonstrate um, an underlying crime, um, that firing Mueller uh, uh, would be regarded as um, uh, such an abuse of power because it uh, prevents the possibility of figuring out whether or not um, there's a crime um, that members of the House, especially the Democrats, but I think potentially even some Republicans uh, would want to regard that as an impeachable offense. I think whether or not you get two-thirds majority uh, to convict may be much tougher, um, but, but you can imagine it getting a majority in the House. Uh, many thanks for that. David, the same scenario to you. Imagine that in the future the president fires Mueller. Imagine there's a Democratic majority in the House and it impeaches on those grounds. Uh, how, and imagine that you're, you're the uh, House managers arguing to the Senate for conviction. How, how would you try to persuade those undecided Republicans that firing Mueller actually is an impeachable offense? Well, you do need to look at the course of his conduct. I mean, plainly, uh, with the firing of Jim Comey, one of the troubling features of it, and there are several, um, is the president's shifting explanation. 
you know, first he says it was because of the way Comey handled the Hillary Clinton case. And then he says it was because of had the Russia thing. And he says different things to different people. Um, so that um, calls a lot into question as to what his intent really is. Is it a corrupt intent? Um, I do think uh, his defense uh, is going to be somewhat persuasive and hard to resist unless you've got uh, something concerning the Russia investigation that is bad for him. Uh, I think if, in fact, the Russia investigation never gets far enough to tell us what the answer is, it's going to be very unsatisfying uh, to try to get it's good for, for any moderate, if there are any, or conservative legislator to vote uh, for impeachment um, in that circumstance. Uh, and I understand fully the argument that he shouldn't have the power to prevent us from getting an answer. That's certainly true. I think you would get congressional committees, if it was a Democratic Congress, that would press hard on that. I think you'd find state attorneys general uh, investigating that as they are now. But I think that's the piece that history, that people looking at history are going to feel like they've, they've got to have. Um, otherwise, um, it, it just degenerates into this sort of, you know, we, we don't like you uh, impeachment, which has, has never worked. Keith, uh, uh, David surely right that the we don't like you impeachment has not worked historically. But what about the opposite scenario that the president fired Mueller or the, the independent counsel recommended impeachment based on his conclusion that there was obstruction and uh, there was no um, conviction in the Senate? Would that be an example of the impeachment um procedure failing, or would it be working as it was intended to work historically? I actually think we should count that as a, as a success. Um, that, you know, all through American history, it's, it's often framed that if you get an impeachment in the House, but you don't get a conviction in the Senate, um, then the impeachment itself was a mistake um, and ultimately a, a failure. Um, but I think that uh, undersells what impeachments uh, can do and have done um, over the course of American history, that the mere uh, fact of impeaching in the House itself um, can send an important political signal um, about what kind of behavior um, is tolerable uh, within the political system. And you don't necessarily need to remove somebody uh, in order to successfully send that signal. So we might think of the impeachment power um, as being a particularly strong form of a censure resolution, uh, for example. So it doesn't have a, an effect of removing somebody, um, but it lays down a marker um, about um, what you think uh, acceptable um, political practices, how you think an office ought to be conducted uh, in the future and the like. Um, and that can be quite successful. So when um, the House uh, impeached um, uh, Justice uh, Samuel Chase uh, during uh, the Jefferson administration, um, the Senate refused to convict, um, but it's in a very strong message to the judiciary um, about how they ought to uh, conduct their business. And Samuel Chase uh, changed his own behavior on the bench after that, and the rest of the judiciary uh, did as well, so as not to run into um, political conflicts in, with Congress in the same way. Um, likewise, um, Andrew Johnson made an effort to reach out to uh, moderate senators, even during his trial itself, 
in order to try to um, communicate to them that he would um, behave better, he would go along with Reconstruction, he would stop interfering uh, with um, uh, congressional wishes um, on Reconstruction policy, and some of the moderates found that persuasive. And in fact, um, Johnson uh, served the rest of his term uh, without uh, getting into conflicts um, with Congress. And so from that uh, point of view, uh, his impeachment was quite successful. It stopped Johnson from interfering uh, with congressional Reconstruction policy and got the president to be compliant. Um, and at the end of the day, that's the thing that they cared about much more uh, than actually uh, removing the president. And we might think the same thing in, in Trump's situation as well, that if you uh, really want to send a very strong message to the president that certain behavior um, is, is unacceptable, um, then an impeachment um, might do that even if you don't uh, remove the president. And, and if you want to send a message, for example, that it's inappropriate uh, to fire a special counsel who is investigating uh, the president himself, um, except in really extraordinary circumstances, um, then uh, it may be reasonable to say, well, look, our impeachment is going to be our vehicle uh, for getting that message across and, and uh, making the point not only to President Trump, um, but also to future presidents that um, this is the kind of behavior that's going to get you into political hot water and you uh, shouldn't do it. Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments on this extremely illuminating uh, historical discussion. And the first one, David, is to you. Um, what would you tell citizens uh, that the history of impeachments teaches about what they should expect from any possible impeachment procedures against President Trump? They should expect them to be a mix. Uh, it is... First of all, and critical to remember that it's a political process. Uh, it tends to deceive people because it has some judicial trappings to it with the charges in the House and then a trial in the Senate. But that's really a, a misdirection. It is basically a political decision. Um, but it's a political decision with tremendous consequences. And it is one uh, that will reverberate. Um, and we have, over the years, developed an extraordinarily powerful presidency. Um, and part of me, and this has nothing to do with Mr. Trump, part of me thinks it wouldn't be a terrible thing for a president actually to have his wings clipped in a direct way. I think Keith makes a fair point that even if unsuccessful impeachment in one that fails in the Senate has an impact. To be honest, it, it's not a badge of honor to have survived an impeachment. I think very few ex-presidents would put that high at the, on the list of their achievements. Uh, so I, I think people need to think of it as a very serious undertaking. It, will be, it would be bitterly partisan for a while at least. The Nixon case ended up with a number of Republicans crossing the line and basically saying, actually, we can't support our guy. And that's when Nixon knew he had to leave town. Uh, if we ever got there again, I think that would happen again. Um, but even without that, um, we need to keep an eye on the larger issues of the power of the presidency, the power of Congress, and the need to somehow figure out a way to act in the public interest. Uh, I, I think that's been obscured uh, too much in recent years. Many thanks for that. 
Keith, last word to you. What would you tell our listeners and American citizens that the history of impeachments teaches about possible impeachment proceedings against President Trump? So I would agree with all that, and I would emphasize as well that the impeachment process is unavoidably political. Um, there's going to be political judgment involved. It involves um, political actors who are thinking about the political consequences of what they're doing. Um, but it does have very grave consequences. Um, and so um, I think members of the House, but I think especially members of the Senate, um, uh, will be very cautious about how they uh, think about uh, an impeachment and the possibility of removing a president and will be hesitant um, to do it um, except under um, really exceptional um, circumstances. Um, it's also true that impeachment's a very flexible um, uh, tool, that um, every impeachment's a little different, um, that particular actions um, that are regarded as abusive um, that an official might um, have engaged in uh, is going to be somewhat unique and, and as a consequence, force Congress um, to make um, very contextualized um, judgments about um, uh, how a particular official, in this case, um, a president, um, has has behaved and what kinds of threats um, it poses. And I think it's worth thinking seriously about what we think the point of impeachment um, are and, and what the point of the impeachment power uh, might be. I think one of the failures of the Republicans during the uh, Clinton impeachment um, was to not make that kind of broader case about uh, why is it necessary to actually use the impeachment power in a situation like this. And, and that cost them, I think, um, politically, uh, both with the general public, but also uh, in, in the Senate. And I think likewise, if the Democrats, for example, want to advance a case against um, President Trump in the future, um, uh, they would be well advised to not only think about um, the specific actions that President Trump is engaged in, um, but also why those actions in particular justify an impeachment. Um, and, and that can't just be uh, because he's making controversial decisions we disagree with. Uh, we have policy disputes with him. Uh, we think that the people made a bad decision uh, when they elected him in the first place and because he's really unfit for office. Um, but instead, it requires really focusing on very particular actions that the president has taken um, and making the case that those actions are uh, both well beyond the bounds of what's acceptable uh, for a president to do um, and, and that impeachment's the right remedy um, for those abuses um, such that it's essential uh, that Congress take this step rather than, for example, uh, relying on courts, relying on executive branch officials, relying on other lesser tools um, to be adequate um, to addressing what we might see as problems within the executive branch. Thank you so much, Keith Whittington and David Stewart, for a historically deep, illuminating, and educational discussion of the history of impeachment and its relevance to current vexations. Keith, David, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. Credit is available for in-person events here at the National Constitution Center and for on-demand courses online. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash CLE for more information. Finally, and very importantly, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired and engaged by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. 
please consider becoming a member of the National Constitution Center. To support our work, including this podcast, visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.